Thank you, Lauren and worship team, for leading us. It's great to see all of you here this morning, and also to those of you who are worshiping online, welcome. Uh, I say this, I'll probably say this every week for a couple of weeks, it's great to see people begin to come back after the summer and vacation, begin to kind of reconnect. It's always an exciting time of year. Our summer sermon series, Sinners and Saints, is drawing to a close. Next Sunday's message will be our last in, the, in this series. And today we're exploring the life of Ruth. Now Ruth is the third woman who appeared in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And in verse 5 of that chapter we read this. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And as we've looked at the lives of Rahab and Tamar, I noted how unusual it is for women to show up in Jesus' genealogy. And these weren't just any women. Rahab was a foreigner and also a prostitute. Tamar seduced and manipulated her father-in-law to become a mother. And Ruth, our subject today, was a foreigner, a native of Israel's enemy nation, Moab. And so the question kind of begs to be asked, how do these women show up in Jesus' genealogy? And I've, I've talked about that with Tamar and with Rahab, and then we're going to look at, at Ruth today. But you might be wondering why I've placed so much emphasis on the women in Jesus' genealogy. I've highlighted Rahab, Tamar, and now Ruth in our current series because I'm convinced that their showing up there has significance for us. I find it curious that people who aren't familiar with the Bible and Christianity make the assumption that the Bible's out of touch with modern sensibilities about the role of, of, of women and the nature of women. It's true the ancient culture surrounding the Old and New Testaments didn't give women the standing that they have in our culture and in many cultures around the world today. But in a world where women were devalued, God consistently called his people to value, honor, and respect women as people created in his image. An early example from the Old Testament where women were granted status in Israel beyond what the common, was common in the nations around them was when God instructed Moses to give the daughters of, I want to make sure I get this right, I I spelled it out to get the pronunciation, Zelophehad, the daughters of Zelophehad. He gave them inheritance rights because there were no men in their family. And that was a very unusual practice at that time. In the New Testament, we see Jesus and the Apostle Paul viewing women as ministry partners in a culture where females were typically relegated to second-class status. Despite the values that Scripture gives women, numerous denominations in our contemporary church setting view women as ineligible for pastoral ministry roles in the church. Based on statements the Apostle Paul wrote as he addressed some specific situations in two New Testament churches. Yet in various New Testament letters, the Apostle Paul clearly identifies a women in his circle of ministry as pastors, church planters, and apostles. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 28, we read these words. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And one of the most compelling arguments that I've seen highlighting the value our Heavenly Father and the Scriptures place on women first came to my attention through N.T. Wright. Um, he points out that it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and John, and also a woman named Salome, who were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. 
in a culture where women's testimonies weren't committed in co- permitted in court because they weren't seen as being credible, God chose three women to be the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Um, Wright refers to these women as the apostles to the apostles. Because these three women who witnessed Jesus' resurrection for the first time went back to the disciples who were gathered in a, gathered in a room afraid with the doors locked to tell them that they had seen the risen Jesus. I've chosen to highlight the stories of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth in our Sinners and Saints series because I'm convinced that their appearance in Jesus' genealogy isn't a coincidence, that he's trying to get our attention. In the Old and New Testament and today, women were and are called by God to play integral roles in Jesus' church and in the advancement of his kingdom around the world. In our own church here at McVick, Pastors Susan, Jen, and Cindy are invaluable team members on our staff. And I'm committed to supporting them and other women who sense God's call to pastoral ministry. Now, I wanted to share that because I realized as we go through this series, and three times I've read portions of Jesus' genealogy, and I kind of joked with you, like, this is probably the most boring start to a sermon you've ever heard, and then proceeded to read parts of the genealogy. But I believe it's very significant that three women show up in Jesus' genealogy in a, in a in a forum where usually only men are listed. And I'm convinced that God's trying to get our attention as he does that and as they're listed there. Last week we looked at the life of Samuel, and I pointed out that while we tend to think God uses people uh, of influence to accomplish his purposes, he often uses those who aren't influential or don't seem to be to do his work. In Samuel's story, a woman named Hannah, who was unable to conceive a child, And later, her young son Samuel played an important role in bringing about spiritual renewal in the nation of Israel. Today, we're highlighting Ruth's story. Ruth was a widow from the country of Moab, whose faithfulness to her mother-in-law and her trust in God opened the door for her to marry a man named Boaz and eventually be included in Jesus' family line. Ruth's story is found in the four-chapter book, Ruth, that bears her name. A small book is located between, in the Bible between the book of Judges and the, and the book of 1 Samuel. And as we walk through Ruth's story, I want you to focus on the theme of God's protection, blessing, and favor. Now I'm going to try to give some context for some of the things that we see happening in Ruth, but there's a lot of historical practices there that are fairly complicated. And hopefully I'm able to capture those in a way to help bring us up to speed to understand what's happening But I just want to encourage you that there's some cultural things there that are kind of tough for us to to tap into. Some of the things we might read and go, what what is that about? Um, And so, uh, you know, as we we do that, just recognize it's happening in a different area. And hopefully we can can make those translations to our own context. I'm not going to read these four chapters in their entirety. But I want to read portions of the book to make sure that we have the storyline. And I'll start in Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, and I just want to pause there because we're going to talk about this in a moment, but judges, if you go, if my Bible has Ruth starting on the right page and judges ending on the left, if you go back over to judges, it says, in those days, the days of the judges, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Okay, and then it says in Ruth, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. In other words, she was left in a very vulnerable position. No husband, no male sons, alone essentially in a foreign country that throughout the scripture is seen as a nation that's hostile to Israel. Now the beginning of this story is shared in a very matter-of-fact way, but there's a lot going on here. We're immediately told, as I said, that these events occurred when the judges ruled. And the time of the judges, if you read through the book of Judges, it's a hard book to preach about. There's a lot of tough stuff, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of hurt, a lot of things that we don't understand, a lot of idolatry, a lot of people leaving God, a lot of very difficult things. While the book of Judges records some wonderful stories about Gideon, Samson, and Deborah, it was a dark time in Israel's history, filled with violence, unlawfulness, and God's people frequently straying from him. Judges ends with that summary, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Those words are followed by the account of Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, leaving Bethlehem for the country of Moab because there was a famine in the land. Now we might read that and think, okay, there's a famine in Israel, it makes sense to go someplace where there's food. And that might come to us, you know, initially we might see it that way, and yet, if we look back a little more closely, we realize that God strictly told his people that he would care for them in the land of Israel. And so by leaving Israel and going to Moab, Elimelech and Naomi were basically saying, God's not caring for us here in Israel. We're going to go somewhere else where there's food, a pagan country, Moab. And while there, their sons marry two Moabite women. Another prohibition for the Israelites was they, they weren't to marry pagan people. We see Elimelech and Naomi stepping away from God's protection to try and provide for themselves. And while apparently they found uh, wives for their, their sons and food, within 10 years, Naomi's husband and her sons both died. Now Naomi found herself alone and seemingly unprotected in a foreign country that historically, again, was hostile to God's people. Naomi then heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people and provided them with food, and so she made the decision to go back home to Israel. And if you were with me last Sunday with us, you heard about the cyclical nature of the Old Testament. And unfortunately, it's a, a cycle that many of us are prone to as well. I think it's really human nature. God blesses us. In our blessing, we become proud and turn away from him. In the Old Testament, they often turn to worship other idols. They experienced the consequences of their decision. In their distress, they cried out to God. He heard their prayer and restored them to blessing. And that cycle repeats itself over and over again. And I said last week, it's human nature. So if that cycle happens for us once or twice, it can kind of be expected. 
But my hope is that we don't repeat that cycle over and over like it continues to happen in the Old Testament. But that as God blesses us and lets his favor rest on us, we come before him in humility and recognize where our blessing come from and submit ourselves to him. So back to Naomi and Ruth's story. Naomi is preparing to leave Moab to go back to Bethlehem where she's heard that God is providing her people with food. And as she goes, her daughter-in-laws, who were very fond of her by this time, said that they'd go with her. Naomi says, hey, you really need to stay. I'm not going to be able to provide another son for you, even if I had children today, and by this time Naomi's pretty old. Even if I had children today, by the time they grow up and are ready to marry you, you know, you're going to be very old too. So you need to stay here and find husbands among your own people. You'll be, you'll be cared for better here. Orpah, the one daughter, agrees and goes back, but Ruth says these famous words that are often, sometimes, sometimes are quoted at weddings. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And through her words, we see that something pretty special has taken place. That in Ruth's time with her mother-in-law, Naomi, she not only has come to greatly love and care for her mother-in-law, but she's come to know and trust Naomi's God. When Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, arrived in Bethlehem, the town was stirred with excitement. So it's been at least 10 years, right? Uh, Elimelech and Naomi were probably people of standing, in, in Bethlehem, and so as Naomi returns, the town is stirred, and they say, hey, there's Naomi. We find out that her name means pleasure. They say, can this be Naomi? Naomi responds to their question by saying this, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, Mara. And she explained her statement with these words, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I think sometimes when we read the scripture, it's hard to really get into the depth and the passion of what's being said. But she's in a very desperate place. Not only is she experiencing hardship, not only did her sons die, she basically said, God's deserted me. I left here full, and I'm returning empty. Now, it's a little bit of revisionist history, right? Like, she left because they were, her and her husband left because they were starving, and they couldn't make it in Israel. So when she says, I left full, but returning empty, a little bit of revisionist history going on there. But she does come back without her sons and without her husband. Her life had been hard. Her bitterness was understandable. Losing a husband and two sons in the span of 10 years would be tough for anyone to bear. However, like many of us are prone to do, she did rewrite history. She said she went to Moab full and returned empty. The reality is they left because there was no food. They were struggling to make ends meet, and they were looking for a better life. Naomi was in a difficult place. Her husband had died young. Her two sons had also died she was all alone in the world as a widow who was convinced that God had turned his hand against her because her life had been so hard. But this is key. Just as we said last week that in the time of uh, Samuel and, 
and his mother Hannah that it said the word of the Lord was silent. There were not many visions. But then God spoke to Samuel. And I emphasize that even when God seems quiet, he's not silent. Well, life was hard for Naomi. But God hadn't forgotten her. He hadn't deserted her. After Naomi and Ruth settled in Bethlehem, Ruth went out to harvest grains in the field of a local farmer. And this is one of those cultural things I hope to, uh, hope to explain quickly. One of the provisions of that time was that the poor, uh, and widows and orphans, could get food for themselves by gathering grain on the edges of farmers' fields. And so one of the, one of the, um, the things that God had established for, for landowners, he said, don't reap the grain or corn, wheat, whatever it is you're growing, don't gather it to the edge of your fields, but leave the edges alone so that the poor can come and find food and sustenance for themselves. And so Ruth, who's very poor, along with Naomi, goes to the field and begins to gather wheat behind the workers and what's left behind and what's on the edges. To make a long story short, she ended up in the field of a man named Boaz, a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Ruth continued to glean in Boaz's field throughout the harvest, and he was generous to her. He even instructed his workers to drop some of their grain so she'd be able to pick it up. Now, I don't understand the measurements of that time period, but apparently the amount of grain that Ruth was able to bring home to her mother-in-law was pretty astounding. Like, they were amazed at what she brought home. It was clear that Boaz was blessing her by providing her with extra grain so that her and her mother-in-law could live. The story continues, and at some point, Naomi makes Ruth aware that Boaz, the farmer whose field she's been collecting grain in, was a relative of theirs, and he was in line to carry on Ruth's deceased husband's legacy by marrying her and producing a male heir. Now, I kind of explained this practice two weeks ago when we were looking at Tamar's life. The practice in Israel and in other cultures of that time to carry on a man's family line was that if a man, if a husband died without having a child, his, one of his brothers would then take, would, would marry the wife and hopefully have a child to, to carry on the deceased person's family line. And so you start with the oldest brother and then you go down to a younger one. In this case, there's no brothers. And so it starts to go down the line of family relatives, and Boaz is in that line as one of the people, it's called the guardian redeemer, who was supposed to be able to fulfill the, the, carry on the deceased person's family line by having a child with the widow. Boaz apparently was attracted to Ruth, and he took note of her kindness to her mother-in-law, Naomi. He was interested in marrying her, but there was another relative who was closer in, to Naomi's husband and so had the first rights of marriage. And so Boaz was in the line, but there's somebody else in front of him. That if that person wanted to marry Ruth and kind of carry out her husband's legacy, he had the first rights to that. And even as I talk about that, you kind of see the vulnerable place that women were in in that culture. Like they didn't really have a lot of ability, agency to make their own choices, kind of dependent on other people, uh, dependent on men to, to care for them, to, to, to uh, protect them. 
when the harvest ended, Boaz and his workers were celebrating. Naomi encouraged Ruth to demonstrate to Boaz that she was interested in marrying her by participating in a cultural ceremony that gave Boaz the opportunity to claim Ruth as his wife. In the ceremony, Ruth would kind of hang out, and again, this is where, I'm not sure of all the details here, but she'd hang out in the barn by the threshing floor at night, and when Boaz lay down to sleep, she'd lift up the blanket from his feet, uncover his feet, and lay at his feet until he noticed her. And I'll pick up reading in verse 7 of chapter 3, and, and this will give you some more of the details and the way this unfolded. Ruth chapter 3, verses 7 and following. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. It's dark, right? I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, if we were to read that verse in isolation, we'd be like, what is that talking about? But that was the ritual. And as the guardian redeemer, the protector in her family line, he had an opportunity to provide protection and sustenance for her by basically covering her. And, and it's kind of symbolic, kind of a, a think of a, of a mother hen's wings extending over her chicks. It was kind of a, a symbolic of the wings spreading over. So she had, he had an opportunity to do that. Here's Boaz's response, verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. The, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. Again, this practice seems kind of strange to us, but the guardian redeemer was, redeemer was designed as a protection measure to not only carry on the family line of deceased, but also to protect his widow. And this practice of spreading the garment over the woman by the man was a symbol of his willingness to protect and support her in a culture where unmarried women were extremely vulnerable. The next morning, just as he said, Boaz went before the elders. He expressed his desire to marry Ruth, and carry on the family line. And as the story plays out, Boaz is sitting there with the elders, and he says, hey, you may, you may know that Ruth, or that Naomi, <coughs> Elimelech's um, widow, is back in town. Um, she has a daughter-in-law who's also a widow, and uh, the family still has land. And so the process or the practice here is that one of the people in the family line could take over that land. And so the guy who's next in line says, yeah, I'll take, I'll take some extra land. I'll purchase it. And then Boaz says, and you can tell he's, he's doing this very thoughtfully. He says, uh, oh, and by the way, there's a widow in the deal too. Now, it's not just a question of taking on another wife. The reality is that somebody, this guy, if he were to take um, Ruth as his wife, 
would then split his inheritance, that it wouldn't just go to his sons, but then Ruth would get part of his inheritance. And so it's not just a question of him taking on more land and having another child. It actually harmed his inheritance of his own children that he probably already had. And so he says, uh, no thanks, I'll pass. And Boaz says, I'd like to step into that. I'd like to fulfill the role as the guardian redeemer. And so that's how Boaz was given the rights of what was known as the guardian redeemer and took Ruth as his wife. Interestingly, both Tamar and Rahab are referred to at the conclusion of Ruth's story when you read the end of chapter 4. Tamar is mentioned by name and Rahab's husband Salmon is also mentioned. When the elders accept Boaz's proposal to become Ruth's guardian redeemer, they said this, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. After Boaz and Ruth had a son, they they named Obed. The women of Bethlehem blessed Naomi with these words. Because really, this is impacting Naomi also, significantly. They say, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Naomi, who experienced such heartache in her life that she told people to call her bitter rather than pleasure, pleasant, was cared for, delivered, and protected by God even when things in her life seemed like they couldn't get any darker. She experienced God's provision and protection through a woman named Ruth who was attracted to Naomi and her God through her life. Even though prior to encountering Naomi, all Ruth ever knew in Moab would have been pagan worship, the worship of pagan gods and goddesses. So there's a lot there in Ruth's story, and I would encourage you to read those four chapters and kind of pay attention to some of the notes that explain some of the, the practices that maybe don't make a lot of sense in our current context. What's God speaking to us, though, through his Holy Spirit this morning? Have you ever, or do you currently find yourself like Naomi, in a place where bitterness, rather than pleasure, characterizes you in your life? I just want to pause there. Are you in a place where things are tough? And you say, you know, if if I'm honest, there's a lot of hurt. There's some bitterness. There's pain. There's brokenness. At times, we encounter difficulty through no choice or fault of our own. But other times, like Naomi, we end up in difficult spots and find ourselves blaming God, though if we're honest and look a bit more closely, we'd realize our choices contributed to us being where we are. Here's the great news. Whether you're in a tough spot this morning due to choices that you've made, or what seems like just bad luck, or a combination of both, which is probably the case most of the time. Some of it seems like bad luck. Others of it contributed to by choices that we've made. Understand, God hasn't forgotten you. He is your protector. He's your provider. He's looking out for you even when you doubt his presence and his care 
and his concern for you. I want you to hear those words and be able to receive them in your heart. God hasn't forgotten you. He cares for you. He loves you. He knows what's happening in your life. He's working to carry out his purposes in and through you. I love the words of Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. My hope for each of us, whatever we find ourselves walking through today, is that we're able to experience God's delight in us. We know, and we know that he loves and cares for us, and he's working out his purposes in our lives. If you'd like someone to pray with you this morning, because maybe God is stirring something in your heart, there will be prayer people along the side who would be happy to listen to you and to pray with you and just ask God's blessing on your life. We'll do that during our time of singing. I'd encourage you to go to them. Before we sing, though, I'd like us to read those words of Zephaniah 3.17 aloud to help kind of uh, sink them into our hearts. And so those words are on the screen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. I'd like you to read these words aloud with me. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you but will rejoice over you with singing. Those are powerful words, and they're meant for each of us. Whatever you find yourself walking through, wherever you find yourself today, God's with you. He's the one who saves. He takes great delight in you. He rejoices over you with singing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your promises that you most clearly revealed to us and fulfilled in your son, Jesus. I thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And you told your disciples that it was actually better if you would die and leave them, because after you left, the Holy Spirit would be with them. God, we live in a time when we get to experience the blessing of your Holy Spirit. When we commit ourselves to you and invite you into our life, we're not alone, but your Spirit is with us. You comfort us, you care for us, you guide us into truth. Lord, I don't know all the situations that people find themselves walking in today. Difficulties that they're encountering, per, encountering personally, maybe physically, emotionally, or spiritually, financially, or job-related. I don't know the burdens that many people carry for others. But Lord, I know the truth of your promise that you're with us, that you delight in us that you rejoice over us with singing. And I pray that each of us, wherever we might find ourselves today, would know that reality of your love and your delight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.